There is a very interesting story that I came across about a lady who was living alone and she needed some companionship. And so she decided what she would do is that she would go to uh, the dog pound, the, the, uh, it, was, it was the pound, I mean, I was going to say an animal shelter, but where she went was the pound, and I mean, sometimes they cross over. And she went down there to pick her out an animal. She wanted a dog, but she would, she would settle for anything. And so she began to wander the, the aisles looking at all of the animals. And she was, had one of the staffers with her, and she came to one of the cages, and there was this little dog in there. It wasn't very old, maybe a year or a little bit less. And uh, she started asking about this, this little dog, and the staffer said, oh, we've had that dog for a while. Um, if nobody claims that dog, it's, you know, we're going to put it down here in just a few days. We just don't have the, the space uh, by the end of the week. We'll, we're going to put that dog down. And the lady said, well, then that's the dog for me because uh, that's a great-looking dog, and, and a lot can, uh, that dog can help me in a lot of ways, uh, but don't put that dog down. So she walked out of there with that dog, saving that dog's life. Took the dog home and began to just live life with his dog. And she loves this, this dog. Day in, day out, love this dog. And uh, they had a little nightly routine. She would go into the bedroom. The little dog would be her shadow following her into the bedroom. She would go and begin to get ready for bed. And the little dog would go and get in the little dog bed and stay in the little dog bed um, until the morning, until it was time, until she, the lady got up and went about her day. That was just their nightly routine. And this went on for almost a decade, 10 years. The dog would go, get in the dog bed. Lady would get ready for bed, get in bed. Every night, same thing, nothing changed. Until one night, she goes in to get ready and the dog doesn't get in the dog bed. The dog follows the lady into the bathroom as the lady's getting ready. And she can tell the dog's a little antsy and she's thinking, well, maybe she's got to go back outside to go to the bathroom. So she goes and lets the dog back outside to go to the bathroom. They come back in and the lady gets in bed. She sits down on the bed to uh, uh, turn her lamp off and go to sleep. And as she does, the dog jumps on the bed, which the dog never jumped on the bed. That was a big no-no. The dog never, ever jumped on the bed. The whole 10 years she's had this dog. I know some of you are thinking, I let my dogs get in the bed. Well, good for you. That's, I don't know about your dogs. My dogs are dirty. I clean, especially right now when it's all rainy. I just cleaned off one of my dogs this morning when they came in. I mean, I could see him bounding across the yard, mud splashing everywhere, thinking this is the worst thing in the world. But this lady, the dog, got on the bed, and she said, what are you doing on the bed? The dog ran around her to the other side and began to lick her on the face, which, again, in 10 years, the dog had never licked her on the face. She didn't allow it, but the dog had never even tried. She thought, this is, this is really weird because uh, this has never happened. She pushed the dog away, set the dog in the dog bed, went to sleep, got up the next morning, went about her day. Next night, same thing happened. Dog jumped on the bed, came around to her, her side, and began to lick her on the face again. Same spot, right along the jaw. What is the deal? This happened night after night. Dog would jump in the bed, having never done it before, lick her in the face. And the lady began to think something may be wrong here. You know, she knows she's heard about dogs, you know, having this sixth sense about some things. It's just odd that the dog would run around her to the one side and just lick her in the one spot. Not her ear, not go for her mouth or, you know, her head, but just right along her jaw. And so she began to look some stuff up about dogs and 
So dogs can maybe detect some illnesses or sicknesses. And so she just began to feel along her jaw. I think, well, there's nothing there. I don't, I don't get it. So she went a few more days with the dog still doing the same thing, jumping on the bed, licking her in the face. She said, well, maybe the dog can detect something that, that, that I can't. So she said, I guess I'll, I'll trust the dog's instincts and go to the doctor. And so she schedules an appointment for the next day, and she drives to the doctor. But she, all the while she's driving to the doctor, she begins to think, what exactly am I going to tell the doctor the reason is I'm coming in? The dog told me to come to the doctor? And so she begins to try to process, how am I going to com- tell the doctor, I'm here because the dog's licking me in the face. You know, a lot of it, I mean, you think about that. How would you tell the doctor here in town, whether you go to Walker's or Lofton or somebody, hey, I'm here because the dog's licking me in the face. Oh, you're one of those. <laughs> okay. Uh, and so she goes into the doctor and she, she says, I think something's wrong. I can't really tell. I don't know. She doesn't quite say it's because the dog told me to come. And so the doctor orders some scans because, she, you know, she says, I feel like something's not right. And sure enough, she's got bone cancer in her jaw. And when she comes back uh, from, to, to get the results and they tell her this, they said, if you had waited until you could feel the bone cancer there, it would be too late. That dog saved your life. So the lady said, well, I saved the dog's life, and now the dog saved mine. She chose to trust something that didn't make sense to trust, and it saved her life. Trust is a decision we make. Whether we're going to trust someone or something, it's a decision we make. Scripture tells us, In Jeremiah 17, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. He's blessed if you trust in the Lord. That is a blessing. You're blessed if you trust. Psalm 40, verse 4, blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. Again, you're blessed if you trust the Lord. Psalm 37, verse 5, commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, And he will act. Trusting in God provides a way through. Even when sometimes it may not make rational sense to you in the moment, we're still told to trust God. Well, turn in your Bibles, if you have them there, to 2 Kings chapter 3. It's on page 308, if you have one of the Bibles from the pew rack. Uh, And if you don't have a Bible, please take that one home. Um, Or if you need a, a, a different translation of Bible. Please take that home. We have some others we can replace that with, but everybody needs a Bible they can understand. 2 Kings chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 4. We're going to start reading, and I'll explain a little bit to you what's going on here. 2 Kings chapter 3, verse 4. Now Misha, king of Moab, was a sheep breeder, and he had to deliver to the king of Israel a hundred thousand lambs and the wool of a hundred thousand rams. But when Ahab died, the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. So let me give you a little background. Um, the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, God's people, had had a civil war and split apart. So now they had two nations. They had the nation of Israel and the nation of Judah. This is the nation of Israel. They were generally ruled, if you read Chronicles and Kings, by guys who did not follow God. Guys who who not only didn't follow God, but led the whole nation away from God. Well, the current king of Israel's dad was named Ahab. He was married to a woman named Jezebel. Uh, Anybody know 
<laughs> I was going to say, anybody know a Jezebel? Anybody know, know about Jezebel? About her? She was not very nice. She was not very good. She was a very bad, bad, bad lady. Ahab wasn't good to begin with, but Jezebel just influenced him further and further away from God. But if you read about Ahab, there was even one moment, though, he did turn back to God. But then Jezebel grabbed a hold of him and pulled him back to where he was. Well, Ahab uh, died, and he had you know, conquered this, this nation of Moab, and Moab had to pay Israel this tribute, basically a, a tax for being conquered every year. So what was it? Did you see? It was a lot. 100,000 lambs and 100,000 rams every year. That's a pretty steep price. So Ahab dies, and Moab, the king of Moab says, well, he's dead. I don't got to pay that anymore. That's all. I don't have to pay this anymore. This is nuts. I'm not going to pay. Uh, this is a great moment transitioning to his son being king. His son's going to be weak, at least at first, so I'm just not going to pay anymore. Well, his son became king, and actually the son who becomes king only ruled for two years and then was killed. Uh, and then his son, or not his son, his brother, Ahab's other son, becomes king. So Ahab dies, one son becomes king, rules for two years, he's dead. Second son become, er, becomes king now, and that's who we're dealing with here. And during this period, that nation of Moab is still rebelling, still not paying their tax. And so look at what happens. Uh, verse 6. So King Jehoram, that's the king of Israel, he marched out of Samaria, that's the capital city, at that time mustered all Israel, their whole army, and he went and sent to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. Now, if you know anything about Judah, Jehoshaphat was a good guy. Now, Judah didn't always have good kings. They had more than Israel did. But Jehoshaphat was one of the really good ones. He was faithful to the Lord. He followed the Lord. He wanted the nation to follow the Lord. And so now you've got the evil king of Israel coming to the good, holy, faithful king of Judah. And this is what he says. The king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to battle against Moab? And he said, I will go. I am as you are. My people as your people. My horses as your horses. Now, I read this, and it just blows my mind, first of all. Jehoram is evil and wicked and hates God. Jehoshaphat loves God, is faithful to God, knows all about the king of Israel hating God. And the king of Israel comes and says, will you go to war with me? I think, Jehoshaphat, why did you go with him? I mean, he's, a, he's bad. Like, not even close to good. Not even if you squint, you might see some good. No, he is just straight bad. But for some reason, and I think that comes later on, because God wants to teach us something through this situation, Jehoshaphat says, yes, I will go with you. I will go with you. Now, look at what it said. This, this part gets really crazy. Then he said, by which way shall we march? Jehoram answered, by the way of the wilderness of Edom. Let me teach you a little geography here, okay? Oh, you, know, you got, let's say the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is filled with salt. Nothing grows around the Dead Sea. You got the Jordan River flows into the Dead Sea. Jordan River's alive. It flows into the Dead Sea. Everything dies there. Everything around there dies. So Jordan River comes down south into the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea, nothing flows out. So everything down south of the Dead Sea is desert and dead and terrible and awful. On this side of the Dead Sea, you got Israel and Judah. They're going to attack Moab on this side of the Dead Sea. So Israel, Judah, Moab, got to get around the Dead Sea, either up top where there's lots of green, there's forests, there's lush uh, stuff down south, there is desert. 
Well, the king of Israel, bad guy, says, let's go through the desert to get over there. We got to get over there. I want to defeat them because they're rebelling. They're not paying me my tax. So let's go over there and get them. Well, the king of Israel, he's thinking, you know, telling this to the king of Judah. And it may come across as sounding strategic. They're not going to expect us to come through the desert. But the desert also held another kingdom down there. Another kingdom that was an ally to Judah. And so the king of Israel is probably thinking, let's go down that way, and maybe that king can go up with us and attack us too, go attack with us too. So now we've got three armies against one army, we're going to win. And that's exactly what they do. Uh, verse 9. So the king of Israel went with the king of Judah and the king of Edom, and they had made a circuitous march of seven days. There was no water for the army or for the animals that followed them. So they're in the desert, and shocker, there's no water. They're marching through the desert and they didn't bring enough water for all of their people and all of their animals to make it. And so they're going this way. And remember, whose idea was it to go through the desert? King of Israel, bad guy. So, verse 10. Then the king of Israel said, Alas, the Lord has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. So the king of Israel, bad king, whose idea it was to go through the desert, said it's God's fault we're out here. It's his idea to go through the desert. It's his, it was his idea that got them into trouble, and he blames God. Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but any of y'all ever do that? You get yourself into trouble, and you blame God for the trouble you're in? Maybe not saying it out loud, but maybe in the back of your mind, I can't believe God let this happen. God's saying, well, you chose to go that, you chose to go that way. Like, it's not my, f you, you chose that road. You chose to walk through that door. You chose that. King of Israel chose this road and blames God for it. But look at what Jehoshaphat, good king, what his response is to the situation. Bad king's response was, blame God. Good king's response, verse 11. And Jehoshaphat said, is there no prophet of the Lord here through whom we may inquire of the Lord? His response is, let's Let's ask God how to fix this. Bad king said, let's blame God. Good king said, let's ask God how we can fix it. What's very important about this question Jehoshaphat asks, let's see if there's a prophet who can go and ask God. He has asked this question before. Actually, Jehoshaphat asked this very question from the bad king's dad, Ahab. A few chapters ago, Ahab wanted to go to war and asked Jehoshaphat to go with him. Jehoshaphat said, okay, but let's ask a prophet of the Lord. And so they went and asked a prophet of the Lord, and actually that battle they went and fought was the battle in which Ahab was uh, uh, killed. But he's, this is his common response. The response of Jehoshaphat, good king, is always, let's ask God. His response is, let's go to the Lord, and let's ask God. Look at the rest of the verse. Then one of the king of Israel's servants said, Elisha, the son of Shaphat, is here, who poured water on the hands of Elijah. And Jehoshaphat said, the word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. Now this is very interesting for a couple reasons. First off, Elisha would have been known by these guys. They definitely would have known the prophet who came before him, Elijah. But in addition, the fact that Elisha was in the area... This is not somewhere these guys typically walked around in the desert of a different nation. God had sent Elisha down there for this very reason. 
God had already brought all the pieces together to show these guys something important. So you've got the three kings, Jehoshaphat, Jehoram, and the king of Edom, and they're going down here to talk to Elisha. And they walk up to Elisha. Now, I don't know if you know much about prophets. They don't often mince words. They'll usually say the first thing God tells them to say. Or sometimes, maybe God didn't even say it. It's just the first thing that pops in their head. So these three guys, king of Israel, bad. King of Judah, good. And then king of Edom, we don't really know much about him, but he's there too. These guys walk right up to Elisha, and look at what Elisha says. Verse 13. And Elisha said to the king of Israel, what have I to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father and the prophets of your mother. So basically, Elisha says, why are you here? Go to your own prophets. Why are you coming to me asking God what, what to do? You, you don't even, I, I don't even want to see you. Why, why are you coming to me? Some of you may not have said that out loud, but I'm sure some of you thought it when somebody came to you. Why are you coming to me? Why are you walking into miles? Why are you calling me? I'm, maybe you have said that one out loud before you answered the phone. Why are you calling me? Any, no, nobody's ever said that before? Yeah, okay, well, that was a, woo. she was ready for that. Why are, why are you calling me? And so he says, why are you coming here? Go to your own prophets. Uh, look at oh, what he says there. Uh, but the king of Israel, again, blaming God. No, it is the Lord who has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. Again, he's saying God did it. God, it's God's fault. So Elisha responds to that. And he says, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, were it not that I have regard for Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would neither look at you nor see you. If it weren't for this guy who's faithful, I'd kick you out of here. I'd throw you out if it weren't for him. But because he's here, I'm not going to do that. So you're lucky he's here. It's, it's over for you. I would pick you up and I would, lay hand, I would lay hands all over you in the name of Jesus and kick you out of here is the idea. And so he says, because Jehoshaphat's here, I'll let you stay. Verse 15, but now bring me a musician. And when the musician played, the hand of the Lord came upon him. Now bring me a musician. Tradition holds that it was a harpist comes in and plays music and, and he's able to hear from the Lord in the midst of the music, which happens for many of us at times. In the midst of the music, the hand of the Lord came upon him. And he hears a word from God. Look at verse 16. And he said, thus says the Lord, I will make this dry stream bed full of pools. I want you to think about that for a second. These three kings are coming to Elisha to try to find out a strategy to get through the desert so they can defeat this other country, Edom, or Moab. And the response they get from God is, I'm going to fill this, this desert with water. If you're one of them, are you thinking, okay, we can you know, water our, our stuff, but how, okay, that'll be good. Thank you for the water, I guess. Um, that, that's, that's all nice and well and good. Verse 17, this is how he's going to do it. He says, for thus says the Lord, you shall not see wind or rain, but the stream bed shall be filled with water so that you shall drink, you and your livestock and your animals. So he says, it's not going to come by rain. It's not going to come by wind. It's not coming by any kind of 
manner that you understand, it's just going to appear there. The water's just coming, and you don't know how it's going to come. Uh, look at verse, where are we, 17, or no, 18. This is a light thing in the sight of the Lord. He will also give the Moabites into your hand. So he says, giving you water is easy. He's also, God's going to defeat the enemy, not you. God's going to fight the battle that you came out here to fight, not you. He will give you what you need and the water and the sustenance and the provision, but then he himself, without any help from you, will defeat this enemy. And then you will be able to do something. He says, uh, verse 19, And you shall attack every fortified city and every choice city, and shall fell every good tree, and stop up all the springs of water, and ruin every good piece of land with stones. The next morning, at about the time of offering the sacrifice, behold, water came from the direction of Edom till the country was filled with water. Now, I don't know if you all were paying attention a second ago. Water came from Edom, the land underneath the Dead Sea. Do you all remember what that land was? The desert. God brought the water from the desert. I don't know if you paid attention in school. The desert doesn't have water. But God brought the water from the desert. From the thing, the desert, the place that that these kings thought was going to kill them, God brought their provision from the midst of the thing they thought was going to kill them. And he not only does that, now what he does, you can go on and read it another time, but he brings that water and he fills this whole section with water. Well, the Moabites look out over the valley and they see these armies there, but not only do they see these armies, they see the water, but they see the water from a different perspective. Because of the heat, they see the heat haze kind of creates this color. And what they see is instead of water is a sea of red out there. And the assumption from Moab is that the enemy, these three armies, had all killed each other and filled the valley with, with blood. There's no way it's filled with water. It, it has to be blood. And so they're celebrating. And so they just kind of take a, you know, a little Sunday afternoon walk down there, kind of all excited because these armies have all killed each other because obviously all we can see is blood. And they get down there and they walk right into the camp of the three armies, not prepared for battle. Some of them left their weapons back at their own camp. And then all of a sudden they realize, whoops. And the Israelites and the uh, nation of Judah and the Edomites defeat them easily without much of a fight from the other side. God provided not only all the water they needed to drink, he provided the victory with the same source, the source he brought from the desert that they thought was going to kill him. What they had to do, the, the, the uh, king of Judah and Israel and Moab, or, uh, Edom, they had to just wait for the next morning for God to bring it, bring the water. It said the, the first sacrifice, that's like mid-morning. So they wake up, the next morning, and they can look out, and there's no water yet. The, it says the water's not going to come till the, the, the first sacrifice, which is mid-morning. And so they wake up, sun's out, they're looking out over the horizon. They can see the army of uh, Edom across the way, and there's no water. They said, God said the water's coming, but there's no water here. What are we going to do? They just have to wait. They just got to wait a little bit. 
even though the water doesn't look like it's there yet, they just got to wait. Maybe Edom's even getting closer. It looks like the battle's getting closer, the struggle, the fight may be getting closer to them, and God just has them wait. But at just the right time, the water shows up from an impossible place and provides all that they need and provides the source of defeat for the enemy. The enemy comes, they defeat the enemy. God does this amazing thing simply because they trusted in him, in the impossible. They trusted that God would do it. They trusted that God would deliver. Even when they woke up the next morning and it didn't look like God was going to deliver, they just had to trust that he would. And God brought it, the water that they would need. I want you to flip over to Proverbs as we look at this idea of trusting the Lord to bring deliverance, trusting the Lord to bring provision. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5, Solomon writes, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. That, that, that phrase, do not lean, that literally means, in the original language, do not support yourself with your own understanding. Do not support yourself with your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your path. Acknowledge him. Acknowledge that he's involved. Acknowledge that you would not be where you are without him. Acknowledge that he is providing everything you need in the moment. Acknowledge him everywhere you go. And he will make straight your paths. He will smooth out your paths. Now that doesn't mean that he's going to make your paths easier. He's going to remove all the rocks and bumps and hills and, you know, the, the swerves. This phrase means he's going to make your paths easier to discern. So you'll be able to see where you're going. He'll make your paths easier to discern. So for trusting the Lord, acknowledging his, his power, his presence, his, his provision all over our lives, then it will be far easier to recognize his path for us. And notice there, uh, go back, Tony, to, to verse 5. We're told to trust with all our hearts. I think this is the crux of the whole deal. We're told to trust with all our hearts. That means every piece of our hearts, not holding anything back. But if we were actually transparent and truthful, I think we all tend to trust God a little bit, but not really with all of our hearts. You know, we'll trust him with salvation, but we struggle to trust him with, with all the other pieces. We struggle to trust him with all of our finances. We struggle to trust him enough to increase our giving. We, we struggle to, to trust him enough to intervene in our health or intervene in a particular situation with a particular person. We, we struggle to trust him with those things. We'll trust him with eternity, but the daily stuff, the grind stuff, we have difficulty trusting him with. Probably because, you know, we, can control the, we can't control eternity. God can do that. We can trust him with that. But we feel as though we can control the daily stuff. So we, can, we, we will control that, God. You keep your hands off of my stuff, and, and I'll keep my hands off of your stuff. But the problem with that kind of thinking is God's stuff is all the stuff. We just got to wait on God like the armies did. They had to wait on God. We have to... 
we have to not meddle in the situation. We have to not wrestle it out of God's hand and take it up in our own. I mean, we, we, we tend to intervene. We tend to act before God does because we don't trust him enough to wait for him to do it. You know, in Psalm 20, verse 7, I love this verse. It says, some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Some people trust in what they can see. Some people trust in what they've trained. Some people trust in what their experience tells them. I mean, these armies going out to fight this battle in 2 Kings 3, they've fought battles before. They've trained in battles before. They've got great faith in chariots and horses and the strength of their arm and their swords and their spears. But they had to trust that day. They had to trust God. And that was the only way the victory was going to come. Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And we have to decide, what are we going to trust? Am I going to trust what, what my experience tells me, what my degree tells me, what, 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 what somebody's telling me, what something I read on the internet tells me, what, what some reel on Instagram or TikTok videos telling me? Am I going to trust that advice or am I going to trust God? To follow the Lord is to trust the Lord. And trusting the Lord makes more sense than my common sense. Trusting the Lord is, is really a super sense. Trusting the, myself and my conventional wisdom is merely common sense. It's not super. It's not elevated. It's just common. Trusting God is next level sense. Trusting God takes it to a whole new level. If I trust myself or some random smart-sounding words on the internet before I trust the Lord, I'm going to find I get in all kinds of trouble. Because I don't know everything. And I guarantee you the internet doesn't. But God does. And so I can find myself in trusting all of these other things rather than trusting God in these situations. And I find that my heart is misaligned. It's not where it needs to be in faith. And I do end up in trouble. And so when I'm misaligned, I must adjust my trust. I must adjust my trust and take it off of these other things that have no business inhabiting my trust and take my trust and put it on the Lord where it should be. I mean, those kings going out to fight, should they in the middle of the desert have consulted God or should they before they even left ask God? Before they even walked out the door, they should have asked God. I mean, if you go back and look at great King David, before he would go and fight the battle, he would say, God, am I supposed to go fight this battle? And if I am, how am I supposed to fight it? But these guys didn't ask first. They went and did and then asked. We have to adjust our trust if we're struggling to trust God, as, as, as that verse in Proverbs chapter 3 tells us, with all of our heart. If we're trusting ourselves in some of these areas, we've got to adjust our trust and, and realign it so that we're trusting God in those areas. Don't raise your hand, but when you tend to trust yourself with decisions about your kids or your finances or uh, uh, your, your health or just about your life, when you tend to trust yourself, do you find that, that you have at times anxiety 
or worry. Did I make the right decision? Is that the right call? Should I have done something else? I don't know how this is going to turn out. But if you trust God, that's not there. Because you're taking it out of your hands and you're putting it in his. You're not the one holding it anymore. He is. You see, all of these decisions, all of these situations were not designed for us to hold. Because we don't have the strength to hold them. God does. He's the only one who has the strength. He's the only one who can move mountains. And so we've got to trust him to hold it. Because if we try to pick up stuff that we can't hold, it's not going to budge. And we're going to end up doing ourselves great damage in trying to carry something that is far too heavy for us to carry. So we have to adjust our trust. Look back at that Proverbs 3, 5. It says there, trust in the Lord with all your heart. That word trust there is a command. It's a command. We're commanded to trust the Lord. So we have to decide ahead of time whether or not we're going to trust the Lord with all our heart. We have to decide if we're going to do it. So that when we don't trust God, we're deciding not to. Our default is to not to. You know, I, I heard a guy talk about it, not, not this specifically, but about this idea of deciding to do stuff and not deciding to do stuff uh, from the perspective of when we tell people, I just don't have time to do that. Or I just don't have time to get this done. I just don't have time. The, it, it's not that you don't have time. You're choosing to do this thing rather than that thing. You're making a choice, a conscious choice, to do this, not that. Now, if you had all the time that ever existed, you would do it all, you think. I mean, but think about Jesus, who accomplished more than any of us. He had the same 24 hours in a day we did. But we choose what we're going to do every day. In the same regard, we choose what, who we're going to trust, God's hand or my hand. We choose the situations we're going to give to God and keep for ourselves. But if we are going to call ourselves followers of Jesus, if we're going to call ourselves disciples of the Son of God, we've got to trust. Because a disciple is defined by trust. A disciple is defined by trust. A disciple who does not trust with a whole heart ends up in the desert parched with pride. You're going to not be where God has you to be because you're choosing not to trust. A disciple is defined by trust. Turning to trust can rescue us when we are taken with anxiety and fear. It can rescue us when we're afraid. Psalm 56, 3 and 4. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? So trust, when I'm afraid, I will trust in you. Trust is the right response to fear. But I want to read those verses again. I want you to notice the, the direction here, the pattern of this verse, these two verses. When I am afraid, I've got fear. When I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. I'm afraid, I trust. In verse 4, in God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. I'm afraid, I trust. I trust, I'm not afraid anymore. Psalm 56, 3 and 4. 
I'm afraid, I trust, I trust, I'm not afraid anymore. It's a process. When you find yourself afraid, when you find yourself riddled with anxiety, rising up within you or worry, put your trust in God. And what does that verse say? Then the fear leaves. It's been replaced by trust. It's been replaced. Because trust is stronger than fear. But trust is only stronger than fear when the one in whom we trust is stronger than what we fear. Let me say that again. Trust is only stronger than fear when the one in whom we trust is stronger than what we fear. If we find ourselves afraid and anxiety uh, or anxiety levels rising, it's because we're putting our trust in the wrong thing. If we put our trust in God, in the Lord, in Jesus, then he has taken the burden off of us. He's taken it away from us. So as a disciple, fear drives me to greater trust in Jesus, and trust leads me not to fear. When we place our trust in one who is stronger than what we fear. You see this played out in our physical lives when to whom does a child run when they're afraid in the middle of the night? Their parents. They're going to run to their parents because they see their parents as stronger than what they fear. And so they run to their parents, jump in bed with their parents because they see their parents as somebody stronger than what they fear. We should do the same thing. Run to our father because he's stronger than what we fear. And he will carry the burden for us if we run to the Father. But you say, okay, preacher, I hear this. Trust God, it's a command. Proverbs chapter 3, it's a command from Solomon, wisest man who ever lived. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. Okay, how do I do that? How can I trust more? This was almost a a, a prayer that was offered by a father in Mark chapter 9. When the father believed God could do, or Jesus could do some stuff, but didn't fully believe. And so what did he say? A famous sentence, really, because he's saying to Jesus, it's a prayer. I believe, help my unbelief. Mark 9, 24. I believe, help my unbelief. You know, in the original language, that word believe means Have faith. It means to trust. I trust. Help me where I don't trust is another way to translate what he's saying in Mark 9, 24. I trust. Help me where I don't trust. So the first thing we do when we're trying to, when we desire to trust more, is we pray. We turn to Jesus. Jesus, I trust you, but help me in all the areas where I don't. Help me in all the areas where I I find I'm short on trust. Help me in the areas where I trust me more than I trust you. Or I trust my experience, or I trust the, 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 the bank, or I trust my fi- my, the money I got in my wallet, or I trust the government, heaven help you, more than I trust you. Help me to trust you more. So we pray and ask God for it. So where else do we turn? To Scripture. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus told this parable in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. 
The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. So we hear his word and we do his word and we find ourselves withstanding the storm because we trust him. We trust what his word says enough to do it and we find that the storm cannot unseat us when we trust him. But those other things that come in our mind and try to pull us away from the word of God, Jesus spoke about that too a few verses before that. He said, beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Those words that try to get us to trust something other than Jesus are false prophets. Because they're saying if you put your trust in this stuff, it will, it will take care of you. If you put your trust in your own hands, in your own wisdom, in your own clarity, in your own cleverness, in your own reasoning and rationale, then you will be fine. That's a false prophecy trying to get you away from Jesus. So Jesus is saying, don't put your trust in that stuff. Put your trust in me and my word. So from Jesus' own words... Put our trust in him. Come to him in prayer. Put our trust in his word. Come to him with scripture. And we will find that we have more trust. So we can try all day long to, to, to obey Proverbs chapter 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all our hearts. Lean not on our own understanding. In all our ways acknowledge him. And he will make straight our paths. We can try to accomplish that. But again, if we try to accomplish that under our own efforts and will, it's not going to happen. We need him to give us the strength to do it. We've got to turn to him to get it done. Because we can't self-discipline ourselves out of the situation we're in, in this broken, temporary world. The only way is with Jesus. The only way is with him, providing everything we need. So we can trust him with eternity, but when it comes to those, those other things that we struggle to trust him with, to put our, put our faith in him, we've got to turn to him to help us trust. I trust you, Jesus. Help me where I don't trust you. Turn to his word. Begin to open his word and begin to ingest it, digest it, memorize it, meditate on it. Like this whole series, we're talking about spiritual disciplines. We started it with meditation back on the first message. If you didn't see it, go back and check it out. It, it's about focusing on God's word and, and having it penetrate your hearts all throughout the day. So to trust the Lord, we have to turn to him. And when we trust the Lord, everything will change in our lives. Everything will change. So I want you to examine your own heart right now in the moment. Do you trust God with all your heart? Or is there some piece or some element in there that you're holding back, that you're not trusting him with, that you're not giving to him? That honestly, it's been a, an argument between you and God about trusting him with that thing. You say, I'll give it to you one day, God, but I'm not ready to give it to you yet. I'll give it to you later, but, but, but not yet. Honestly, that's one of the greatest strategies of the enemy is get us to delay obedience. But delayed obedience is disobedience. God says, do it. Trust me. Trust me. And see what happens. You say, I'm in the middle of, of, a, of a 
hard situation. I, I mean, groceries cost two to three times as much. How are we going to pay for it? I'm in the middle of an addiction. How am I going to get through this? I've tried to get through it, and I can't get through it, and I can't get it removed. Well, you can't. That's the problem. You need Jesus. I was talking to a guy just a couple days ago. Actually, a week ago. Guy said, I, I don't have a problem. I've, you know, I can give it up anytime. I can do this and that. And I said, man, if you could, you would. But you haven't. Because you can't. So the only way is with Jesus. The only way is with Jesus. And so you have to make a decision today. Will you trust Jesus more than you trust yourself? Will you trust Jesus more than some random advice on the internet? Will you trust Jesus more than any other option available to you in the moment? Do you trust him with all of your heart? Maybe today what you need to do is trust him with your salvation. Believe that Jesus is God's son. That he came to this earth and he died so all of your sins would be forgiven. And then he rose from the dead so you can live after you die. And if you believe in that, scripture tells us you're guaranteed heaven. Eternal life begins the moment you believe, John 17, 3. And you're guaranteed a place in heaven, John chapter 14. He's going to prepare a place for you. Will you believe today in Jesus? Trust in him for your salvation. And then begin to trust in him with all your heart, with every aspect of your life. And see then what he can do with a person who trusts him with every part.